Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is the third recap for Chapter 2 of the 1975 novel, Peace. Before we get into it today, though, we want to let you know about another show on the network, because Gene Wolfe is not the only writer that we are covering on a dedicated bibliographic show. I am also very busy reading through every single thing that Neil Gaiman has ever written, doing that on the show Hanging Out with the Dream King, which I do with my friend Brent Helt. And right now, Brent and I are alternating between volumes of The Sandman and then handfuls of Gaiman's short fiction, and we recently finished up the second volume of The Sandman, and uh, that's the one where G.K. Chesterton is a character. And now we're doing the third volume, which means that next month we're going to be covering the Sandman adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a mildly controversial and uh, issue that we really enjoyed talking about. And uh, well, I guess at any rate, what I'm saying is, hey, we would love to have you reading along with us over there as well. Yeah, you really should be reading along. This has forced me to go out and rebuy my <laughs> issues of The Sandman that I've lent out to other people to follow along with you and Brent. It's been a real pleasure. So if you're a fan of Neil Gaiman, if you love The Sandman, and hey, there's a TV adaptation coming out soon. Now's a great time to catch up before kind of the culture really focuses its attention, turns uh, the eye of Mordor onto (laughs) onto Neil Gaiman. I love the idea of uh, streaming television as the uh, the eye of Mordor. (laughs) Well, we are talking about peace and where we left off was with uh, an episode in a cave with uh, Professor Peacock and Aunt Olivia all through Weir's lens. And we're going to continue to follow Aunt Olivia as she is involved in these relationships with her suitors. Right. We're continuing our tour of Olivia's suitors uh, with the first of what is going to be three episodes about James McAfee. Those episodes are not all going to follow like one after the other. They're not in a sequence because Weir is going to give us some digressions. But James McAfee takes up a lot of chapter two, which is something that we'll have to consider in uh, in the discussion as the sort of disproportionate treatment. And this section begins with a description of McAfee, really from the perspective of Weir as a child. His principal interest in McAfee at the time was simply the, the manner in which McAfee's appearances affected his life, affected Weir's life. And, you know, this is true, of course, right, for the other two suitors as well. But what Weir cares most about at first is what McAfee brings Olivia for their dates when he shows up to get her. The other two suitors have been in the habit of bringing flowers or or chocolates. Uh, It's unclear if, you know, for example, the professor always brought flowers and the third suitor always brought chocolates or, you know, like if they they mixed it up. But the point is that McAfee didn't bring flowers or chocolate. He brought actual stuff. He brought Olivia a, a music stand. He brought her bookends, like objects for her home that relate to her actual interests, gifts that frankly, show some thought in the ways that uh, flowers and chocolates (laughs) do not. He also, and and this is the most important part, gave things to Weir. Uh, Coins, usually, but also once a harmonica. McAfee is a busy man. We're going to get to that in a moment. And so he also came less frequently than the other two. And he also came earlier in the evening and he would leave earlier. He would end their dates earlier. And a lot of their dates seem to simply have been hanging around in Olivia's house while she 
played music. He was also a collector of antiques. He had a, a cool car as well. Uh, so they often went out looking for antiques or, or, or Chinese art, right, which is uh, one of Olivia's big interests. But they also went to the Sunday evening band concerts in the park together, and of course, also with Weir, at least this summer. And the reason that James McAfee is busy and, and also can afford to bring real gifts and just give weird money is that he owns and manages the department store in town, which is called McAfee's. And at this moment, we get a little intrusion here. We get another glimpse into Weir's like adult life when he tells us that about 40 years after this moment, so when he's close to 50... Control of the department store had passed to him because of certain financial transactions on the part of the company, which presumably is his company that we've heard him mention a few times already. And when this happened, he went through the store's records looking for documents from James McAfee's time running the store, but he actually found very few, despite the fact that McAfee ran the store for a really long time. I want to talk about the the scenes in the in the park with the bandstand. Wolf or we're probably here really <laughs> perfectly evokes a public park in a small town with a bandstand and a, a war memorial, which I'll talk about in a moment. It reminds me so much of some of the public parks in the town I grew up in, a, a town that was full of parks and factories and Vietnam memorials and, and maybe a World War II memorial. You know, those memorials in the town I grew up in had a lot to do with the active VFW in the town. And that's a place I only visited once and ate some cheap hot dogs and talked to a family friend who was a vet of the army in the eighties. <laughs> he took me there for cheap hot dogs and some talk of shared experiences. And now I'm just writing my own memoir perhaps <laughs> of growing up in a small town. But the memorial in the park in, in Cashinsville is a civil war memorial. And we met Lou Wallace in the last chapter, who is famous for Ben-Hur, but had no small amount of infamy for his uh, in his time for his role in the Battle of Shiloh in the Civil War. And Dennis thinks that all the names on the wall of this memorial are the names of the people that the, the figure, the statue of the soldier had killed in the war, rather than those from the town who had died. And, and, and it's really strange to me to think of a memorial as keeping the memory of, of once confirmed kills alive, rather than as a, a place for the town to memorialize those who it lost. And I'm sure, Glenn, you have uh, something more to say about this, but I, I just want to point out that it is becoming more and more clear to me that this book has a lot to do with American history and a subjective kind of encounter with American history as a series of facts that you're not quite sure what to do with when your present doesn't really match the past that people have lived through or talk about. I was really struck by this bit where young Weir, yeah, thinks that this is a list of confirmed kills, which is is not a ridiculous assumption to make. I mean, it's totally wrong. And so it's easy to you know, think it's just kind of dumb and, and to laugh about it, I guess. But but how would you know that, right? There's nothing, uh, well, there might be, but at least in Weir's memory, there doesn't seem to be any indication on the memorial that explains that. On, on many memorials, especially, I think, First World War memorials, there is something that will indicate that, that will say something about like fallen, like the, you know, the fallen from our community or those who made the, the greatest sacrifice or those who gave their lives. But a lot of Civil War memorials that I have seen have not done that. They don't say that. It is often just the list of names. And so you've got to make an inference about something. And 
not having lived through, or at least you know remembered, I suppose, because I, I, I guess that Weir has probably lived through the First World War and also the Spanish flu, but not having lived through uh, a tragedy in which many members of a community have died, you wouldn't otherwise have any real experience with knowing what it is that's being commemorated here. And there's also a certain level of abstraction that has to be made to think that the the soldier on top of the the monument or the, the you know the soldier who's the statue part of the monument is an abstraction to represent all soldiers and not like a specific individual who's being honored especially since we have a lot of statues in public places that are specific individuals who are being honored so I think Wolf here in presenting this is actually doing something really cool to get us to think about the way that we remember, the way that we commemorate our past and maybe wars in and other tragedies in particular through the eyes of a child who just can't read that language. And it gets us to maybe meditate a little bit on our own experience with monuments like this, you you started to do, Brandon, because monuments like this are something that we just totally take for granted and often don't even just notice anymore, right? I mean, I think we can all probably think of the number of times that we've walked by a monument like this, commemorating some war or other tragedy. And that's it. We've just walked by it. We've not stopped. We've not read the names. We've not thought about those people as individuals in, in any way. It's just become kind of decoration in this park, which clearly it is at this moment, right? That it's not something that, you know, Olivia or McAfee or anyone else has talked to him about. No one has used this as a kind of, uh, you know, teachable moment to learn about the Civil War or something like that, which is, you know, here in, we're about 1920, 1925 or so. So is not something that happened, you know, centuries ago. It's something that happened in his own grandparents' lifetime and something that would have happened while this community was still relatively young as well. But already this is faded into a kind of memory and something that uh, people take for granted in this memorial has become just kind of generic decoration in the park. Yeah, it's part of the kind of shared, imagined and fabled past. While Weir is having a difficult time making sense of the abstractions that you know, are present in a war memorial, he, he is becoming a little more aware. Perhaps this is in light of McAfee's non-ostentatious expressions of wealth. That Weir's becoming a little more aware of kind of class stratification and class consciousness. He notices also how the classes in the town stratify, as I said, based on where they sit during these summer concerts in the park. And though there are no rules that say, like, these people sit here, the wealthy sit here, the poor sit here, everyone still sits in their kind of assigned positions. Each person, though, this is the case, though the poor people are further away and perhaps across the street, each person can hear the music just as well as the next because of the way the public space is designed. And this to me feels like almost defense of the agora of the public space. And I wonder, you know, the memorial is a part of this public space as well, but I wonder if we'll see Weir express any more concern about public spaces and their preservation and the necessity of them as this book continues. I really love this image here. And I think that we have to assume, right, that this is a kind of amphitheater. I mean, that's the description that we get. And yeah, in the, the ancient world, right, where, where amphitheaters are invented, the front rows would totally have been reserved for a, a distinct class of people who were legally separate, but also, you know, had that position and had that privilege because of their wealth. And there would actually even be, you know, seats there that were more comfortable and so on. And these were set aside legally, not simply by kind of unspoken custom. But I'm really fascinated by the fact that this can even happen. I, I, cause I just can't imagine 
our own society doing this. And maybe some of that is because you and I live in communities that are too large for us to know everybody, to know who people are. And maybe also we're just all a lot more transient. And uh, I don't know, all our best friends are on the internet <laughs> anyway, right? It's like <laughs> sort of how we're living now. But also we just don't dress up, right? Everyone would go to something like this and, you know, our communities dressed essentially the same. But Weir tells us here that Olivia and McAfee are, you know, making a point of dressing to their station. People do know who they are based on just like the quality of clothing that they're wearing and so on. And so this feels a little bit like a like a lost world. But also this this really recalled to me the fifth head of Cerberus again, right? That we get a huge chunk of that story taking place in an amphitheater that just felt very similar to this one. Yeah, I mean, anytime I see a defense of uh, agoras or public spaces, I'm going to harp on it because uh, it's something we definitely need more of in our local communities. And it kind of is a societal value as well. I'm not going to go on a rant here, but I just, uh, I'm stepping down off my soapbox. Let's continue with the text. <laughs> right. All right. Well, uh, next up is actually a textbook perfect tease. Weir tells us that the affair of the Chinese egg began around three weeks after he went to live with Olivia, and that it began when McAfee allowed her to set up a shop of sorts in his department store. And we are going to get more on that. In fact, we're going to spend a lot of time on the affair of the Chinese egg, but not now. And what is really happening here is that Weir is remembering Olivia coming into his bedroom to tell him about the shop and himself just not being very interested in this because what nine-year-old would be interested in this and going back to reading the, the book that he's he's super into. And then what we get is three pages about the book. So <laughs> that's where we are now. It is story time. Weir's bedroom reading seems to be a collection of like fairy tales and folk tales, though he doesn't actually say that. He's not explicit about that here. But in any case, he relates to us now an approximation of the story that he was reading as he remembers it, you know, separated by decades and decades here. And it's the story of a princess who lives all alone in a tower on a rock in the sea. And she lives out there because of a prophecy, a prophecy that was uttered when she was born. It was uttered by a wizard in wolfskins who came to court. And here's what he said. The little maiden you toast here shall live alone full many a year, and many a white shall seek her hand, though she not own a foot of land. Earth, sea, and air will woo the fair, but fire will win her. And though her sire be a king by birth greater, the groom will gin gold from the earth. And because her father, the king, did not want to be lesser than the husband of his daughter, he sent her to live alone on this rock so that no one would ever be able to get to her in order to woo her and therefore marry her. Uh, her name, by the way, is Aliyah. But nonetheless, living out here, right, it's not a death sentence. He sends a ship out every day to bring Aliyah supplies. And how that works is not clear because we're also told that there is no place to anchor and that the suitors who had tried to come woo this mysterious princess have all drowned. But, you know, it doesn't have to be clear how, how this is being provisioned because, hey, it's a fairy tale. So now that we've got the premise, it is time to meet the three suitors, right? Earth, sea, and air. First up is the youngest son of the king of the gnomes. He manages to get into the tower by being really small and pretending to be a mouse on the supply ship. And when he introduces himself to Aliyah, she gives him a number of fantastical tasks that he's got to go perform because, hey, that's how this works. And these tasks include recovering the ring of a bell from the bottom of the sea. But 
Alaya thinks that his kisses taste too strongly of fresh turned earth, so she's not into it. Next up is a perfectly mundane dude, nothing fantastical about him. He's just an adventurous young merchant, and he's able to get into Alaya's tower simply because he's good at sailing. He has like practical skills that he can use, nothing fantastical there. But he too has to have a series of adventures in order to woo the princess, and so he uses his merchant skills to bargain a fox out of his ox. This is wordplay here. It works better on the page than it does, I think, in audio format here. (laughs) But then he trades, you know, the ox to a giant for his shadow, which the merchant then uses to terrify a seaside town until the inhabitants make him their king. And then eventually he gets a magical bird of ruby and amethyst that he gives to Elia. But of course, she sends him away too. And this time it is because the heavy purse hanging from his belt bruises her when they embrace. Finally, we get the suitor of air, and he indeed lives in the clouds, and he gets to the tower simply by jumping down onto its roof from, you know, a cloud. He also has to perform tasks for Aliyah, and these are all mundane. It's actually just chores like cleaning fish and washing dishes and emptying slops, right? Chores that are really difficult without the tools and machines that we use today, of course. But in the end, the the princess sends him away as well. And in this case, because his kingdom is too insubstantial, it's all emptiness and moaning wind. And that is not the end of the story, right? The prophecy does say that Aliyah is going to marry someone who gins gold from the earth. But this is where Weir's reading was interrupted by Olivia telling him to turn out his light and go to sleep. And Weir also tells us that he never finished this story because he had this weird idea as a kid that you couldn't pause your reading, that you had to begin a story at the beginning and then read all the way to the end in one sitting, uh, which, you know, I guess means <laughs> very clear, right, that we're not listening to our podcast. <laughs> Weir is almost certainly not <laughs> listening to our podcast for innumerable reasons <laughs> of which we can go in. Uh, we can go through them if we want in our final discussion episode, all the reasons why Alden Dennis Weir can't listen to audio in our world. But, uh, but for now we've got to deal with this fairy tale. There's little I want to say about it here because it really deserves its own full section in our discussion episode of chapter two. Wolf is doing a lot by thinking about how prophecy functions, about how fairy tales work, uh, maybe pulling some metafictional tricks here by inserting himself as the wizard. It's, it's, it's madness. Uh, Wolf references Titania here again, who we saw. Uh, this is an allusion to A Midsummer's Night Dream, the fairy queen. In, we, we talked about her in chapter one. I will say one thing, though, that we simply can't avoid bringing up now, and this is because it's evident in the text, and it's simply this. Elia, the name given to this princess, is Greek for olive or olive tree. It also has a name meaning highness or something along those lines, but still, Elia is clearly Olivia here, and there is a suitor missing, one we haven't met yet, the fire suitor. I have no doubt that though Weir doesn't finish this story in his reading, we as the audience will get the end of it, but in a more mundane fashion. Still, we'll be able to dig a lot deeper into this once we finish the chapter and talk about you know which suitor is which and where the fourth suitor is and so on. It'll be fun trying to untangle some of the more explicit symbolism Wolf is engaging with here. And uh, there's a lot of symbols he's attached to Olivia as well. Yes, absolutely. And I'm really excited to give some some 
big space to to this and and also some of the other fairy tales that we're going to get when we get into the discussion episode in you know several months from now because hey we do put bookmarks in our books and uh, <laughs> and continue on and uh, I'm going to be really excited I think but one thing I will say here before we get to the discussion and before we get back to the the, the beat by beat here is simply to report that as I said when we were doing chapter one that I have picked up a copy of Andrew Lang's Green Fairy book which Weir gets as a gift and it is the nap time uh, reading that uh, I am doing with my son and we are about halfway through it at this point and this story does not appear in there or anything like it so far but uh, I will keep keep looking I mean it's real clear that even if there is Wolf will have adapted it to his needs and so on but so far this seems to be entirely Wolf's invention. But as I said, we do have months before we get to the discussion, so probably I'll have finished it by then. We'll have uh, we'll have finished it and be looking for something else for nap time. But yeah, I, I I was wondering if this was an Andrew Lang screen fairy book. But the next uh, kind of fairy tale we get in this chapter, there's one more. I don't know. Purports to be from uh, Thousand and One nights uh arabian tales though i'm certain that there is no such story in, right. in that book either so yeah i think wolf is writing his own versions of these stories that have more of a, a symbolic impact on weir's life right and we'll have to think about maybe how that relates to the idea that this is all really some kind of mirror image of uh, of america and not the real america that we are living in but yeah let's uh, let's save all of that for the discussion <laughs> so we don't get totally derailed here so yeah let's get back to olivia's news about this shop right she's going to be setting up a stall in McAfee's store it's going to be there every tuesday and thursday afternoon and she's going to decorate china and she's going to give lessons to customers about how to paint their own china as well and this is something of a serious hobby of olivia's it's something that she's been doing since she was a kid and as we've alluded to several times actually in this chapter and and our episodes already olivia is really interested in chinese culture and has been collecting labels from chinese products and and other sorts of things for a long time and then learning to imitate the art she's also been doing this from books that she has about chinese art and Weir gives some really beautiful descriptions of her work with willow branches and dragons. But he also tells us that this kind of sucked for him because Olivia completely set aside her other hobbies at this point, And that included cleaning the dog kennels, which now became his job. So, you know, already we've, <laughs> we've thought about some resentment he might have over the, the dogs. And here we get some more of that. And one of the things that I like about this entire chapter so far is Weir's ability to remember what it's like to be nine and, and also right to not know anything about the world, like, hey, the Civil War Memorial. And so also, though, to not quite be sure about the difference between China and Japan, as we, we get here in this section. And we had some of this with the professor as well. In explaining a bit about China to Weir, Olivia explains that there, there's not currently a Chinese emperor, but there are prophecies that there will be one again. And this this actually gives us something datable to help us in our understanding of when this is all taking place, since the, the last Chinese emperor abdicated and then also died a little bit later, uh, but both in 1916. So we know that we are later than that, though, of course, we already surmised that. But I do think it's worth keeping track of these few datable moments as we get them. Yeah, well, you surmised that, Glenn. And <laughs> I think it's time for me to concede my point that I thought this was earlier in the 20th century than you, but I will say it did alarm me that we're pointed out the Civil War monument, but there's no World War I monument. And 
maybe we could assume then that this is still going on at this point, though I think we're pretty fixed in the 1920s here. And Weir doesn't seem to have a real awareness of World War I having happened. I will say this, though, that maybe one explanation for there not to be a World War I monument in this town or, or so far mentioned in this novel is that this novel seems to be at least tangentially concerned with the history of America as a place. It's a history as a place of landed peoples who have set foot on the continent and, and is less concerned about those who left and came back, perhaps. And Maybe there's a streak of isolationism here in Wolf's thinking, and we'll have to continue to be on the lookout for that if this novel ever does stray explicitly into a polemic about politics. But World War I is not a war fought on, on American soil, and so maybe Wolf isn't thinking about it as having the same impact on history as the Civil War might have had in the way he's thinking about America in this novel. Yeah. I, so I have some thoughts on that. Uh, let me preface that simply by saying that war memorials are like an actual professional interest of mine. A chapter of my PhD dissertation is about war memorials in the, the early Middle Ages and late antiquity, uh, really like how do people remember the military episodes that affected their communities during the centuries long process that we often just call the fall of the, the Roman Empire, the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So this is something I think quite a bit about and have done a lot of work uh, on the secondary literature of war memorials. And uh, I'm also just interested in memorials. So I will go and look at a memorial when I'm in a, a new place. I will make a point of checking out all of the memorials. It's also you know, important to me as having been a soldier to, to at least think each name, if I'm not, even if I'm not going to say them all out loud to remember these individuals who lost their lives. So uh, what I will say is that actually this is a little bit too early for there to be First World War monuments, or at least it's only right around the time that they would have been going up. It takes uh, many years for First World War monuments to go up, uh, even in Europe where they are really, I mean, ubiquitous. They are everywhere, right? If you're in you know, the UK, if you're uh, in France, if you're in uh, Germany, then there are war memorials for the First World War. Uh, everywhere. Every town will have one that's like the one for the town, but then you'll even see buildings that have them. So like the, the railway station, for example, will almost certainly have a First World War memorial that lists the railway uh, employees who lost their lives in the war. The banks often will have memorials like that as well. Uh, universities and other types of schools also. Uh, hospitals, right? Um, so there are so many of these memorials. Uh, churches, I'm leaving out churches, which, well, they're everywhere in churches in Europe as as well. Uh, in America, we have fewer of them. But in any case, all of those memorials really, most of them anyway, were, were constructed late in the 1920s. They were largely constructed through uh, subscription, meaning that even when a town was putting up the memorial, usually public funds were not spent on it. It was something that people donated money to, and it took time to get the money to make these things and to hire the artists, uh, the sculptors to, to do them. And so this is actually, perhaps, depending on where in the 1920s we really think we are, and I think at this point we are probably around 1925, you know, I don't know, we'll keep trying to suss that out, but this is about when those would start to show up. Uh, but even still, in America, we just didn't have as many of them, because this is actually a moment when we're starting to really commemorate the Civil War. And that was something that interested me about this, because all of the behavior around this Civil War memorial in Cashinsville suggests that it's not new, and it's something that people don't care about. Whereas I think if this had just gone up in the last year or two, that we would have gotten more about it, that we would have heard people talking about it 
people would be more interested in it. Uh, and we don't have that. But that is actually around when memorials like this were being constructed. And this is something that I think we've encountered in our like political discourse in the last uh, several years where statues of uh, Confederate politicians and Confederate generals have become an, an issue, right? It's a question of should we keep those up and who decides that and so on, uh, where we've seen these things in the news. So people might be aware of the fact that those also largely went up in the 1920s. So, you know, generations after the, the Civil War in a sort of a, a strange way. I, I suspected that it would have been too soon um, to put up World War One monuments. So I'm, I'm glad you really clarified that. And that's fascinating. Um, I did not really know the history of monuments that well. I think what would have been more present and we would have been too young to be aware of this are the more ephemeral remembrances, the names in the church bulletin, the obituaries in the newspaper, things like that, things that would have faded away or been thrown out by the time that Weir is uh, becoming aware of memorials and monuments as a mode of remembering and honoring the, the soldiers who gave their lives in combat. Right, absolutely. I mean, that is where Weir would, would, would have these ideas about commemoration. And we also, I mean, I think we should also hearken back, and, and obviously we're going to suss this out a lot more in the discussion episode, but as far as we can tell, right, Weir's most important and earliest experience with the concept of death is the death of of Bobby Black. And that perhaps is coloring the way that he reads this memorial, where that he assumes that this is about who you killed and right. not who you knew who died, right? Yeah, but 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 I think we can we can table that as well for the the, the chapter discussion. Uh, we're at the point, I guess, in this chapter where we're starting to see what the topic should be, but also realizing that we are only half, not even really halfway through the recaps for this, and so we should table too much speculation. Why? Well, before we move on, I, I do have one more thing to say uh, that you know Weir keeps on reiterating that this is a terrible situation for him. You talked about mucking out the dog kennels, and you know we brought up how isolated and lonely he felt early on in this, but it does kind of seem like a fun diversion from everyday life on some level. This this living with his aunt, you know, she makes him swear secret oaths and jokes about murder, <laughs> and he, he gets to hang out with all these really interesting uh, assortment of men who all represent really different parts of society. It's great exposure for models of masculinity and manhood and things like that. But there are real hints also that we're experiences some trepidation during this period of time, especially during the adults joking about murder, that whole conversation. He also experiences nostalgia, I think. He he was exposed to a lot. And because his aunt wasn't going to stop living her life, he is almost treated as a grown-up in a sense. His expectations uh, between what it means to be a child and what it means to be an adult are kind of shifting. And that is a real double-edged sword for a child, for them to take responsibility for their own life this much at the age of eight or nine or, or ten. He's certainly being left to his own devices uh, a, a lot. It's hard to say, you know, how much more that would be if his parents were <laughs> around. And I'm, you know, I'm just beating this drama of his parents are awful people and should probably be arrested for something. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think that that's true. And, and something that's real clear here is that, hey, Weir does not like Olivia. And what is unclear, though, is, is this because he just really hates the fact that he had to move to her house? Or is there a reason that later on he comes to not like Olivia? And, um, you know, we've been speculating already that we're going to have to find out about the fire suitor. So we I think we do know that we're going to learn more about her even beyond the scope of this chapter that bears her her name. But we should be keeping that in mind as well, that it is clear that he does not 
like her very much. Not necessarily that he hates her or something like that, but he just doesn't like her. He doesn't remember this this summer the way that I think that I would probably remember this summer or the way that, you know, kids in, in other books always remember this type of summer, right? Uh, so some breaking of the literary tropes there as well. Well, there's one last bit that we need to do today, and this is another digression. It is kind of an uncomfortable one. And in fact, Weir starts simply by saying that sometimes it is hard for him to remember that his Aunt Olivia is dead. He then immediately follows that sentence with a non sequitur about an argument that Aaron Gold and Ted Singer had once, in which Ted Singer ended the discussion by saying that something was contrary to everyday experience. And that phrase is really what Weir wants to meditate on for the next page or so, because it occurs to him that lots of things are contrary to everyday experience, lots of important things. Childbirth, for example. Individuals don't experience childbirth as a you know matter of everyday experience, yet it still happens and it's very important. Weir also says that marriage is contrary to everyday experience, uh, something that he is keenly aware of himself since he never married. Though he does want to clarify that sex is a separate thing and that sex is very definitely an everyday experience. And this is where the passage gets a little uncomfortable as he describes all the places that people like to have sex. Uh, Their homes, of course, but also cars and movie theaters. And he ends up describing some teenagers he knows having sex. And we're then finishes this section by returning to the topic that started it, which is death. And I'm actually just going to read this paragraph because it's beautiful, it's haunting, but also because it's important to our catalog, our ongoing catalog of apocalyptic visions. And this does not happen every day, nor death, but only once. We talk of strong personalities, and they are strong, until the not every day, when we see them as we might see one woman alone in the desert, and know that all the strength we thought we knew was only courage, only her long song echoing among the stones. And then at last, when we have understood this, and made up our minds to hear the song, and admire its courage and its sweetness, we wait for the next note, and it does not come. The last word, with its pure tone, echoes and fades and is gone, and we realize only then that we do not know what it was, that we have been too intent on the melody to hear even one word. We go then to find the singer, thinking she will be standing where we last saw her. There are only bones and sand and a few faded rags. This last paragraph here is just lovely, and not just for the kind of elegaic nature of the prose, it's an elegy of a sort, but also because of how the images here all tie in to the fact of Aunt Olivia's being dead. In the fairy tale, we saw her associated with the songbird, and and she is through McAfee associated with musicality. Uh, We saw the desire to leave behind some evidence of life in the cave, the idea of burying bones so that something will be discovered later. And now we get this sense of melancholy associated with these images. There's a deep sense of impoverishment when one remembers a loved one and the beauty of life that they associate them, but but it's all too late. And then they're confronted with the material reality of their body being in a, in a grave. It's a, it's a beautiful 
passage, a, a wonderful elegy. I'm, I'm reading it as an elegy to Aunt Olivia that he didn't recognize her worth until it was too late. Yeah, I think that's a great way to see this. And as I've been speculating about it, I, I think really my my sense is that they have some kind of falling out, you know, when Weir himself is older, perhaps as they're both adults, and it might have to do with money. We've seen a lot of the ways that that money is coloring the relationships in this family. And also it's an important part of the suitors of Olivia and also the way that Weir is depicting them in his fairy tale as well. Uh, so I suspect that that's going to play a role here and that they're going to have had some kind of falling out and that this paragraph here then kind of serves as him making his you know peace with that. Uh, you know, I hesitate to say anything more specific than that since we don't yet know the the details, right? But him recognizing that She's a family member, someone who cared for him when he was a child and that she's gone. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to really learning more about Olivia and Olivia's relationship with Weir and, and who the fire suitor is. Lots of mysteries, I suppose, around her. But before we close out, I want to touch on a few more things that you brought up. Firstly, are some of these people that are thrown at us in this section. There's Ted Singer. Turns out he's one of the people who is in the waiting room with Weir in Van Ness's office uh, before Weir is examined and asked to take the thematic app perception test. That all closed out chapter one, though, you know, that experience is, is, is woven through chapter one. Another person in the waiting room is Sherry Gold. Aaron must be her brother or some kind of family relation here. Ted is also one of the high schoolers that you mentioned that's having sex and perhaps he's even witnessed having sex by Weir at some point, along with this girl called Melissa. And she's also known as Lisa, but we don't know her last name. So these are teens who are somewhat known to the adult Weir. But as we've pointed out consistently, time has a strange character in this novel. We've also met a Mrs. Singer who is contemporary with Weir's own mother. So it may be that Ted and Dennis are only separated by a matter of years. Like he's the 20-year-old college student who's come back to town and Ted is 17 or something like that. And so maybe he thinks Melissa is in his range as a potential mate or somebody to date or somebody just casually have sex with. There's just way too much we still don't know. There's one more person who's in the doctor's waiting room that I'm going to mention because kind of sets up the next sections that we'll be covering. And that's Margaret Lorne. Uh, so yeah, she's someone who we'll meet in upcoming episodes. I don't also have too much to say about this reflection or what sets off this reflection, this notion of things being contrary to everyday experience. I've not really come across this phrase often, and I've especially not encountered it as a way to and a robust philosophical discussion, right? It's certainly not a defense of anything, nor can I think of it being used in a way that could operate really seriously as a rebuttal. But I still really think this passage is wonderful. And perhaps we'll have more to say about it at the end of the chapter when we organize our thoughts a little more clearly. Yeah, this uh, this line here is a very strange way to end an argument. And I think it basically just means that, well, my anecdotal evidence is better than your data, <laughs> which, you know, this is not true, unfortunately, <laughs> not the not the way it works. But uh, yeah, that that's my sense. Maybe we'll get more on that later. A couple of things I want to 
add about the the people and the, the waiting room. And one is simply just to say, hey, we've not had the kind of jumping around, bouncing from memory to memory. And I'm not sure that we've, you know, and by we, I mean me, made that clear enough uh, at the start of our episodes on this chapter that we really are just here. We're just in this summer with Olivia with, you know, there will be a few exceptions to that, but we're not doing this, this hopping around that, um, you know, you and I were arguing in the last chapter about what actually that is. So we're on pause with that for a few months here as we're in this chapter, and we'll see if that picks up again. So that's something to to point out here that I should have pointed out earlier. Uh, the other thing is that this waiting room is starting to seem like it's not a real place, right? That this is maybe not actually a memory of something specific, like a real instance that happen, but is a kind of uh, platonic form of visiting this doctor's office. Because yeah, the idea that these all of these people uh, who are going to randomly show up in these other memories were, you know, all in the waiting room at this doctor's office, you know, once together in this very specific, uh, very important moment uh, seems a little, a little far fetched. Yeah, it's I'm I'm not quite willing to suspend my disbelief on that <laughs> just yet. I think they're they're very intentionally and that the waiting room is a place, I don't know, perhaps a kind of purgatory uh, in a sense. These these significant characters in Weir's life are there but not Olivia. And so I wonder if these people were all contemporary with Weir at one point and he had more significant dealings with them as, as an adult and is remembering them in a more innocent state, though. Hey, we've got no way of knowing that right now. We will find out and have to talk about it when we get to the end of the book and, and as more information is re- revealed in further chapters. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. Please do drop by our forum at claytemplemedia.com or our Clay Temple Media subreddit and talk with us about what we've covered so far. I think we spent a lot of time talking about the the war memorial, the Civil War memorial this time. We'd love to hear your thoughts about that or uh, other memorials or just tell us about the memorials in, in your town. I think actually Brandon and I are actually kind of strangely interested <laughs> in, in hearing about that and lots of speculation uh, here in this uh, this section of chapter two as well. And please also subscribe to our Neil Gaiman podcast called Hanging Out with the Dream King. Uh, in about three years, in fact, we're going to have some actual Gene Wolfe content on that show as well, though <laughs> I will be cagey about what those reasons uh, are, why we're going to do that until we get to that. Next episode, we're going to be covering pages 88 to 102 in the Orb 2012 edition. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>